Good morning, church. Seth, I wish that people had to ask primary permission to look at their phone while I preach. I don't think that's necessary. It's good to be with all of you. Isn't it wonderful just to see this place filled and up here filled with, uh, with our graduates and with our children and Father uh, is just, uh, Father God is just blessing this church in every generation in every way. And I think it's so fitting when we literally see the way that relationships are making an impact right in front of us, even as we're doing this series, when we're looking at uh, God's picture of relationships that are intended to have an impact beyond just our own personal fulfillment. Nothing wrong with that, but God intends for us to be relating to each other and the world around us in such a way uh, that those uh, impacts go on for generations. We've been studying this in this little short story of the book of Ruth. Uh, we're in Act 4 of the drama in real life there, the end uh, of this story in one sense. We're going to finish that up. Kelly's going to uh, bless us next week on Memorial Day. Then I'm going to come back and we're going to do a big picture view of the book as well. So we're kind of done this week and kind of not. But last week, if you were with us or if you weren't, we, we left off kind of in suspense. Like any good uh, romance story, rom-com, anything like that, is before the deal is closed, there's going to be one more obstacle to overcome. Uh, if you watch on the Hallmark Channel, you, can, you know about 10 minutes before the show's over, the whole relationship's going to go up in smoke until one more thing happens and they, they meet around the Christmas house and all that. You know, you know how it goes. So that's where we are in the story. It's, we're left hanging. There is a proposal in chapter 3, and there is this beautiful picture of a potential relationship, and yet there's one more obstacle in the story. There's one more potential relationship or suitor that might stand in the way. So we're going to pick up the story there. If you have your Bibles or your devices, we're in Ruth chapter 4, and it's a chunk of a read, but we're going to read the end of this story. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along, the potential obstacle. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down, and Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I can't do it. And the text tells us that they sealed the deal with a uh, uh, taking off of a sandal back in that day. In verse 8, the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. And Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon, and have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or his hometown. Today you are witnesses. 
And the elders and all the people of the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who on this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May you become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, as a parent, I knew the day was coming. It just came a little faster than I thought. Our oldest son, David was in kindergarten, and I came home one day. Melanie didn't say a word. She just handed me this note, scribbled in red magic marker, red hearts on the cover of the letter. You might be able to guess what it is. It was David's first love letter. (laughs) I, I, I still remember. It was just two lines. You remember, babe? It said, I love you, Chloe. Love me. (laughs) But my favorite part of that moment was the conversation that Melanie told me about between her and David on the way back home. She said, are are there other girls that are kind of giving you notes like that? He said, oh yeah, they talk all the time about who they're going to marry. And then they run around on the playground and try to kiss the boys. (laughs) And she said, this is the best part, she said... Well, did anybody, any of them kissed you? He said, no, I'm too fast. <laughs> Times have changed, by the way. Uh, I'm sure his girlfriend today is quite grateful he stopped running. But it, you, you get the sense from moments like this, it, it's a helpful introduction to this story here, where we are in the story. Because we realize from our earliest days Not everybody actually takes advantage of the opportunities of relationships that are all around us. Now, sometimes that's a good thing. We probably shouldn't be setting up our husbands and wives in kindergarten. (laughs) But there are times when we miss something by not engaging the relationships that are all around us at any given moment. And when we come into the final act of this little short story here we do meet a man who does not take the opportunity to engage in a relationship here, and he misses out on more than just a love note and a kiss. As the story begins here, what we find is that the opening is strikingly ordinary. (laughs) Uh, The opening of the story is incredibly average. And the way that the Holy Spirit guides the writer in doing this wants us to feel it in a way. Now, let's be honest as we go into the text here. This is one of those places where the customs are so different and foreign to us that some of the details are a little bit confusing and hard to understand. You might have caught the fact that it talks about Naomi selling the property. Of course, we know throughout the whole story she's destitute in poverty. How could she be selling something when she has nothing? 
And scholars tell us probably what's going on. She's not selling the land. She doesn't own it right now, but she's selling the right to repurchase it. If you know, in the Old Testament times, God cared a whole lot about land ultimately staying in the places where it was supposed to be. So she's selling the right to repurchase it, and if a kinsman redeemer, it's called, or a guardian redeemer, someone in the bloodline that will buy it for the sake of the family, if they don't do it, there's a good chance it might be lost to the family line forever because people didn't follow the law back then. So we have details like that that make it confusing, but we know, we know one thing about this. We know that Boaz chooses to redeem the land and to redeem the family line, and this neighbor does not. And when we're introduced to the neighbor, we get a feeling with the interaction of this guy at the end of the story that we got with the woman Orpah at the beginning of the story. Uh, When we're introduced to that, we remember Naomi, who's gone through this terrible tragedy in her life, poverty and famine, then lost her husband, then lost her children, and she comes back to God's land, and it starts out where... I'm going to kill myself here. It starts out with both of her daughters-in-law coming with her, Ruth and Orpah. But pretty early on, she tells the girls, don't come back with me. I've got nothing to offer you. And Orpah takes her up on that and goes home. And we said in chapter 1 what I want to say here about the neighbor. It doesn't mean that Orpah was evil and he's not evil. He's not even wrong. He's just ordinary. And Orpah is just ordinary in the moment. Now, here's what's particularly interesting. The Holy Spirit has inspired the narrator of the story to make this point in a pretty clever way. Now, when I read the text to you in verse 1, I I read it and it reads this way in the NIV and a couple other translations as well. It, It says that Boaz said to his neighbor, come over here, my friend, and sit down. The problem is that's not a good translation of that word. It doesn't say my friend at all. Some of you might have a translation that captures this. Literally, this is what it says in the Hebrew. Come over here, old so-and-so, and and sit down. (laughs) Literally, one translation says, come over here, John Doe, and sit down. It's a great translation of what's going on in the Hebrew. Several places in the Old Testament, there are these moments where either the writer doesn't know the name, or in this case, when we do know the name, but for other reasons, they don't mention the name of the person in the story. He doesn't get a name. And why is that significant? Because he's making a bigger point here. The Holy Spirit's inspiring him in a creative way to say, here's the problem with this guy. He's not bad or evil. He just has no enduring name. His life isn't impacting anything in any big or significant way. Here's a way to think about it. By choosing only to be ordinary in what he does, in his relationship, he ends up only being ordinary in the impact he makes on the world. Uh, by choosing not to do what the other characters in the story have gone done before, which is go above and beyond expectations, he doesn't go above and beyond any impact or significance. He is strikingly ordinary. And what we find in this place is that it's particularly ironic, because did you notice why he said he wouldn't redeem the land? Did you catch this? He said, I want to protect my inheritance. I want to protect my legacy that I'm passing on for the future. And the great irony is, in only serving and protecting himself, he actually loses the opportunity to have a legacy at all. Do you see that? 
by, by choosing only to serve. And this is not just true for him in this story. It is true for us. The Bible says it again and again and again. When you only serve and care for yourself, you actually sacrifice the ability to be a more significant self. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? He said, whoever wants to save and protect and serve their own life will actually lose it, but the one who is willing to give up their life for a greater cause, namely me, will actually find and keep their life. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says, if anyone would follow me as a disciple, they must give up their self. That doesn't mean you lose your identity. It doesn't mean that. It means you give up self-worship, self-direction, self-centeredness. Again, this guy isn't evil, nor isn't evil. They're just strikingly ordinary. And the only name that we even get from Orpah that carries on in any future generation wasn't even named right. Oprah, Winfrey, they messed her name up. So you don't even get that one. <laughs> you have two characters in the story who choose to be ordinary, and they have no enduring legacy. Now here's the thing. This man ends up being a nobody in the story. It's actually happened and happens again time and time throughout history. Let me give you an example of that in the man named Pete Best. Here's an image of him. I suspect in a room of this size, there may be a few of you who know this, who this is, but I, I believe probably most of you have no idea who this is. At least until I put him together with some other people, and you have to look closely because they were pretty young at the time, but these are the people he started out with. Maybe you've seen or heard them before. A, a, a little band that had a slight dent on music history called the Beatles. And yes, Pete Best was their first drummer. Now here's the thing. We don't know exactly why he was asked to leave the band. But here's what we do know. It wasn't because he was bad. He was, he was okay. He just wasn't great. He was competent, but he wasn't outstanding in any meaningful way. Uh, they say he was a pretty solid drummer, but he was a little bit sloppy. I mean, they were young. He could have grown out of it. He would have been fine. He didn't take it quite as seriously as he should. He would come late to rehearsals and miss them from time to time. And they say he wasn't a team player. He wasn't bad. He was just strikingly ordinary. And now his legacy going forward is he's that old so-and-so. He's that guy. He's the John Doe. He's the guy before Ringo Starr was the drummer. Now, if all he loses is fame and fortune, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a big deal other than to his ego and his 401k. But if we're talking about spiritual opportunities, we're talking about something else. Because God calls us not to just be Jane or John Doe. John, God calls us not just to be old so-and-so, but to actually live our lives and our relationships with some significance. We live our relationships for something more. And that's exactly what Boaz does in the story. He's not content to be a nameless, insignificant one. No, what Boaz does is he allows God to use him to complete the journey of the lives of other people. He says, God, I want you to use me not just to fulfill my own life, but to help complete the story of the lives of people around me. And that's exactly what he's been doing all along, and Ruth has as well. In fact, there's an important moment in here. It's around verses 11 and 12 when you see 
the elders and the people in the community, and then the women come along and speak words of blessing over the family and over the union that's going to take place. And they're doing that blessing. Picture this as Naomi is literally holding her redemption in her hands. She's holding this child, her grandson, in her hands. And they speak this word of blessing. And part of what's going on here, I want you to picture the scene, because what's happening is not just a God's individual blessing of one person in their life. What he does for Naomi in the story is what God wants to do for the entire cosmic universe. Because if you picture what happens to Naomi throughout this story, it's exactly what God wants to do with the entire world. God wants to start with this world he created for good, and we broke it by our rebellion. And he wants to bring it back to a place where we literally hold and experience redemption in our hands. So watch this flow. What happens at the beginning of the story? You don't get much of this, but Naomi starts out, and she's pleasant and blessed and wonderful and Very, very quickly, there's famine and there's death in the family. And she comes back to the land empty, bitter, and broken. And that's what we've done to the world. And then you see early on in the story, just through the simple act of the commitment of Ruth's relationship, just the beginning rays of hope. And then the hope becomes even more visible in the -the over-the-top kindness of Boaz. And now, here in this moment, Naomi holds redemption and hope in her hands. But hear this, it's not just that she gets a grandson. Did you hear the blessing at the end? They say, this is Naomi, and she has a son. She doesn't just get a grandson, she gets her name back. If you followed the story, you know at the beginning of the story, she comes back, her name literally means pleasant and delighted and fulfilled and abundant one. But she comes to the land and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, because my life is not pleasant. Call me Mara because it's bitter and it's broken. And now at the end of the story, they're celebrating Naomi because her life has been redeemed and her name is given back to her through the kindness and the powerful relationship of Ruth and Boaz. Now listen, if the story ended right there, it'd be good enough. It would certainly sell on Hallmark. You could go do it. It would work right now. But you know there's something more, right? One more time, I want you to think for a moment about the ongoing effect of godly relationships. We've seen it again and again. This idea in the Hebrew of hesed translates steadfast love, but it's so much more than that. You know now, it's going beyond just my own need for the sake of the other. What is that God's covenant kind of love? And what's the impact that you see here? Well, I think you get a hint of it here in the blessing in verse 12. What does it say? May your family be like that of Perez. Perez, who was born of Tamar. Now, if we wanted to, we could go a little bit more into the dark side of this family history. Right? Some of you know about it, and there's some darkness there. But I think we talked enough last week about how God works in the darkness, where we don't have to address that here. We'll leave it for another time. But what I want you to see is that this name Perez means something. It has some significance on the ongoing impact of this simple relationship between a man and a woman. Here's a way to think about it. We know this story happened some years before. It happened here. But like the Gospels in the New Testament, in the people of God, the stories were told for a long time before they were actually written down. And scholars tell us, virtually all of them agree, that the story of the book of Ruth 
The Holy Spirit didn't inspire that story to be actually written down until the Israel was coming back from this extended time out that we call the exile. They're taken into captivity in the north, and, and they're all but decimated. And then finally, they're about to go and resettle the land. And think about this. This is a pivotal moment in the history of the people of God, where they're on the brink of extinction. And they don't know if they're going to have an ongoing identity at all. So the people who come back and resettle the land are really important folks. And like all good Jewish folks, they're going to tell you the names of some of those people. Did you know there's a little place in Nehemiah chapter 11 that says this? The descendants of Perez, who lived in Jerusalem, totaled 468, listen to how they're described, 468 men of standing. 468 from this particular bloodline come back and they're described as men of standing or men of valor or men of great character. Have we heard that before in the book of Ruth? It's the way Boaz is introduced in chapter 2. He is a man of valor, a man of honor, a man of standing. It is astoundingly how he describes Ruth, the foreigner and the outsider. She is a woman of valor, a woman of standing, a woman of great character. And feel this for a moment. Isn't this staggering? Generations later, when the people of God needed it the most, there are still 468 men of character and valor. Why? Because their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother and grandfather were men of honor and character too. Isn't that powerful? Do you feel the ripple effect? What God can do through two ordinary people who take extraordinary measures to follow God in their everyday lives. Now again, if that is all that happened, it would be enough. But you know there is more, right? Because I left off the last verse when I read. Ruth 4, 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Pretty significant guy in Old Testament history. From this bloodline not only comes these 468 men of valor and standing that repopulate the land, from their bloodline becomes the most famous and the most important king in Old Testament history. And you also know it is not just David that comes from this bloodline, it is also one that would be called the son of David. Because you know there's one more, this story ends in a genealogy, but there's one more genealogy that Ruth's name ends up in. Have you heard this one before? Think about this. Of all ways to start a telling of the gospel story of Jesus, Matthew says, I'm going to start, I'm going to start with a genealogy, and this is how it goes. Oh, don't worry, I won't read the whole thing, but it starts in Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, God's rescuer, the son of David. And he traces the line from Abraham, and he goes down to verse 5, and it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. They didn't do that, by the way, in Jewish genealogies. They didn't include the ladies. But in Jesus, he gets several of them. And this forgotten woman in a short story in the Old Testament gets in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this is how it ends. All the way down to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was called the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. In this little bloodline between Ruth and Boaz, it goes all the way down to another woman of character who would literally hold redemption 
in her hands. Is that not astounding? Simple relationship of these, these two people acting with character and credibility has a ripple effect that goes on for generations. And so it's amazing to me that the book ends with a genealogy and the book of Matthew starts with a genealogy. If you're like me, I think, oh, that's, a, that's one of those places I skip when I'm reading through stuff. But this is one of the things that we learn as we finish this one up. Sometimes lists aren't boring. Sometimes lists are anything but. Right, Sarah? Sometimes lists of names are not insignificant. Because right up here on Wednesday, we spoke the names of one more generation of Sunshine School graduates that you invested in be shaped in the life and the story of Jesus. These names that were mentioned there and these names of our high school graduates that were mentioned here, those names are not insignificant. Every name that is spoken is a declaration of an achievement in the past and open doors for the future. And other times when they're on walls of memorials here in BCS or the one that probably it is fashioned after outside in Washington, D.C., sometimes every name that's on a wall, every name that is spoken is a declaration of valor and courage that is carrying on to future generations. Sometimes lists are anything but boring. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it when he says, sometimes the lists are the most exciting part because he says this. If I can find my quote here. The gospel does not address us as a faceless, nameless mob. The story of God and the gospel of Jesus addresses people. And the story of God invites you personally to join into the story. And when he calls us, he calls us into relationships that will inter, inter, impact generations to come. So I, I heard an image of this one time in a simple story. A guy named Erwin McManus shared with a group of people a lot like this one. McManus is a pastor and he's a writer in California, and he was speaking to a group of people who invest, as you all do, in the lives of the next generation. He was talking about those who served and worked and helped in children's ministry and youth ministry and, and uh, college ministry that, that are investing in generations to come, and he said, I want to encourage you just by telling you the story of my name. <laughs> he said, I was born in El Salvador, but I strangely have Names that are German and Irish as first and last names. And here's how it happened. He said, I was born in El Salvador, but as a child, we moved to Miami. And he said, and I quote, I had at that time, he never tells us his original name, I had at that time a name that was so geeky, it invited bullies to come and hit me. <laughs> so he said, I wanted to get a new name. So I realized, I, I want to go to my grandfather, he said, and he said, Granddad, I want you to give me a name. Give me an American name that I will have now and for the rest of my life. He would later go on to say, I don't know why it is that I asked my grandfather from El Salvador, who does not speak English, to give me an American name. <laughs> but he did. And his granddad, when he asked him, said, oh, you need a name. But not just any name. <laughs> McManus said, hold on, yes, that's exactly what I want. I just want any name. I just want to fit in. I just want to blend in. But he said, oh, no, you can't have just any name. You need a strong name, a name of a conqueror, a name of someone who is brilliant. And he said, su nombre es Irwin. <laughs> now, all apologies if your name is Irwin. I'm just quoting him. And he said, I've never heard that name before. 
And he said, on top of that, here's the reality. My grandfather loved reading old and studying old like war history and generals and all that stuff. So yes, he named him after Erwin Rommel, the World War II German general in the Nazi regime. He said, great, I've never heard this name before and now I'm a Nazi. (laughs) This is the part that stuck with me. He said, I cannot tell you how many times I wanted to change my name. But I didn't and I couldn't. Because there was one time in my life that someone I respected looked me in the eye and said, you want to be ordinary. It is your ambition to be average. And you want to just disappear into the backdrop of a mundane and meaningless life. But you weren't born for that. You were born for more. And that's exactly what the story of Ruth and the gospel of Jesus Christ says about all of you. God calls you by name. He calls you by name, not to be a John or Jane Doe, old so-and-so. And he's not talking about building a name and legacy for yourself. He's saying, I'm calling you by name personally into the life and story of Jesus so that as you live your relationships out, God will create a legacy for his name through you. And God calls this church by name, not to be ordinary, but to be extraordinary for Jesus in such a way that the relationships that only he can make possible will actually enable other people to hold redemption in their hands for the first time. Someone might actually, through your relationships, get a glimpse of God's rescuer, God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Father God, that's our prayer. That you would so thoroughly bring your character and your story into our lives. That you call us out of an average and ordinary existence to be great for the kingdom in your eyes, not for us, to live for you and to live our lives for others so that people in our community and the world would come to know Jesus. It's in his name we pray.